Let's open our Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 22. We're studying through the book of Jeremiah. We're in chapter 22. It's our desire to get through that entire chapter this morning, verses 1 through 30. Open your Bible, navigate on your uh, laptop or whatever other device you brought. I was at, uh, where was I? I was at Panera a few months ago, and you know they have free Wi-Fi there, and somebody had brought in their entire desktop computer and plugged it in. They had the tower and the whole thing. I thought, man, you know, this person really, really needs to send email. So, <laughs> Jeremiah chapter 22, so whatever you have to, you know, to look at that, that's fine. The topic we're going to find there is that Jeremiah names three of the last kings of Judah responsible for the nation's decline. The title of our message, We Three Kings Disoriented Are. <laughs> so let's have a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for this message, and although at first, Lord, uh, we may think it has very little to say to us as it's addressed to three obscure kings, four, uh, the fourth, a governor, Lord, who, uh, who were terrible administrators of the last days of Judah, Lord, as we get into it, we find that it was written directly to us, that it ministers to our hearts sitting in Hanford in 2012. And that's a a work of your spirit, Lord. And we ask not only that your word would be alive to us, but that your spirit would be present in our hearts to bring that word to us. And Lord, if there's anyone here in the fellowship hall or anywhere on campus that doesn't know you, they have not yet given their heart and life to Jesus Christ, they haven't made the decision to trust Christ for their eternal salvation, I pray that today would be the day, Lord, that they surrender their heart to you. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. It's possible that King Tut was buried with his donkey. Archaeologists tell us that animals are often found in Egyptian tombs. Most commonly, they are pets like dogs and cats and my favorite, monkeys. If you were here last week, we told you how to survive a monkey attack. That's on tape if you'd like to listen to that again. These animals were carefully mummified along with their owners. The articles I read, it's, so, it's cute. They're talking about how much the Egyptians loved their animals. They loved them so much that when they died, they killed them and mummified them uh, so that they would be with them forever. Isn't that nice? Now they're in museums all over the place. The only real evidence, however, that King Tut was buried with his donkey are the lyrics to an ancient song that were found in hieroglyphics. A fragment of it reads like this. Buried with a donkey, funky tut. He's my favorite honky, born in Arizona, moved to Babylonia, King Tut. How many of you remember that song? Raise your hand. All right, you better than first service was a dud. I mean, it was an absolute dud. How many of you know who Steve Martin is? Raise your hand. Steve Martin in the 70s, now stay with me, in the 70s uh, debuted the song King Tut, and it was uh, one of those monster cult classic hits. Now, I'm not dating myself because as, as recently as 2011, last year, Steve Martin released a, an album, it's a bluegrass album called Rare Bird Alert. And on it, he has a bluegrass version of King Tut, which is fabulous. And so it's very contemporary. I span the generations here. 70s, when you're watching the Smothers Brothers, all the way to the year 2011. If you don't get this joke, you don't get anything. Now, the truth is, Tut may not have been buried with his donkey, but there is in our text this morning a king of Judah who the Bible says received a donkey burial. Concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, we read in verse 19, he shall be buried with the burial of a donkey. 
It wasn't gonna be much of a funeral, however, because the verse goes on to say he would be dragged and cast out beyond the gates of Jerusalem. The final four kings of Judah, three kings and a governor actually, are lamented and condemned by the prophet Jeremiah. We'll see that as kings, it was their duty to show compassion on especially their most disadvantaged subjects, but they were instead compassionless. Although these verses are definitely about kings and the standard God holds them to, I think we'd all agree that compassion or the lack of it is important in our walks with the Lord. As we discuss these failed kings, I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, you should expect yourself to be compassionate. And number two, you should inspect yourself for being compassionless. Let's take a look at compassion in verses one through five. Upon the death of godly King Josiah, his youngest son, Shalom, was put on the throne. His name was changed to Jehoiahaz. At the time of Jehoiahaz's reign, Judah was oppressed by Egypt. The Pharaoh took Jehoiahaz to Egypt as a prisoner. The Pharaoh placed Eliakim, the oldest brother of Jehoiahaz, on Judah's throne. He took the throne name Jehoiakim. When Egypt fell to Babylon, or excuse me, yes, when Egypt fell to Babylon, Judah and Jehoiakim came under the control of Babylon. Jehoiakim tried to rebel against Babylon. In about 606 BC, Nebuchadnezzar sent an army to besiege Jerusalem. Jehoiakim was carried away in chains. The next king of Judah was Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim. Obviously, he needed to change his name as well. He took the name Jehoiachin and began the Chin dynasty. Again, the Babylonian army came against Jerusalem. Jehoiachin surrendered in 597 BC. He was carried away captive to Babylon along with a large number of other Jewish captives. Nebuchadnezzar placed Mataniah on the throne. You never heard of him because he took for himself the name Zedekiah. Zedekiah tried to ally himself with a new pharaoh against Babylon. That was a bad move. It was the final straw. Nebuchadnezzar came and he raised Jerusalem, burned it to the ground, and destroyed the temple. Our text in chapter 22 is a review of the administrations of these four individuals. Three of them were kings. Zedekiah was more precisely a governor. We first see what God required of them as kings, what his standard was, and it was that they be compassionate. So verses one through three, thus says the Lord, go down to the house of the king of Judah and there speak this word. And say, hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, you who sit on the throne of David, you and your servants and your people who enter these gates. Thus says the Lord, execute judgment and righteousness and deliver the plundered out of the hand of the oppressor. Do no wrong, do no violence to the stranger, to the fatherless or to the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. Now the things mentioned, especially in verse three, they're not exhaustive. They are meant to be a summary of all of God's law regarding the governing of God's people. The emphasis is clearly on showing compassion upon the less fortunate members of society who could not represent or help themselves. The word compassion expresses a deep emotion. It's a striving of your innermost being to pity others in their situation. It's a strong emotional reaction to someone else's situation that causes actual physical responses 
we talk about being moved to compassion, moved to do something. You might go so far as to say it isn't really compassion if it doesn't move you to action. Verse four, for if you indeed do this thing, then shall enter the gates of this house, riding on horses and in chariots, accompanied by servants and people, kings who sit on the throne of David. But if you will not hear these words, I swear by myself, says the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. General word to the kings of Judah, Show compassion and your throne will be blessed by God. A king will sit on it and the people will be ministered to. Be compassionless and God himself will make your throne desolate. Think of all the many qualities that you look for in a leader. Leadership is big, it's important, it's been important. Well, it's always important, but there's a lot of talk about leadership and right around the time I think Bill Clinton was president, you remember him, white-haired guy, uh, we talked a lot about integrity and leadership and what kind of a leader do we want and those kinds of things. And, and you might, you know, if you were ever asked, make a list of the top qualities that are required of a leader, you might, but probably might not put compassion at the top of that list, but it, it is at the top of God's list. What's so important about compassion? Well, in a nutshell, it is Christ-like. There's nothing more Christ-like than compassion. Jesus was often moved with compassion. You read that he was moved with compassion, that phrase, at least seven times in the gospel accounts of his ministry. And you don't have to read it to know that it was always a motivation as the Lord looked out upon hurting human beings. When he saw the true human condition, both uh, spiritually and physically, the Lord was always moved with compassion. In every example where Jesus felt compassion for someone or for a group of people, there was such a movement of compassion from within him that it surged out of him to meet needs. In some cases, that movement of compassion caused him to provide food or to raise the dead or to deliver the demon-possessed, to heal the sick, sometimes to provide teaching for the sheep who were without a shepherd. Jesus was moved with compassion even before he walked on the earth as he saw the lost condition of the human race from eternity past and he was so affected by it in heaven that it moved him to come as God in the flesh to die on the cross for our sins. You understand that for God to become a man is a step down. <laughs> I mean, we, with all this talk about a possible Mormon president and the Mormon idea that men can become gods, which they cannot, we, we kind of get, you know, we confuse that. We think, we think sometimes of Jesus as like a superhero, you know, the God-man. Yeah, he was God who determined to take the body of a man. And in that, what theologians call the hypostatic union because they can't figure it out, and they have to make up a big name for it so they can earn a PhD, uh, in that union that no one can understand of fully God and fully human. And then Jesus, what does he do? He dies on the cross for the sins of the world so that all those lost in trespasses and sins could be saved for eternity. He rises from the dead in a real physical body. He told Thomas, he says, hey, touch me, I'm flesh and bone. And there's a sense in which, and I use this reverently, Jesus Christ has limited himself 
to dwell in a physical body for all eternity so that he can relate to us, so that he can be the first fruits of them who will rise from the dead. It's a joy, is it not, that you and I who are believers are going to rise from the dead and have glorified physical bodies that are fit for eternity? They're like the body of Jesus Christ. And so when you talk compassion, it begins and it ends with the Lord Jesus Christ who had compassion on the human race before there was a human race and while he was on the earth and he continues to. So it should be obvious that a king as a steward over God's people and a representative of God to them would be tasked with being compassionate. It is just as obvious that each and every believer in Jesus Christ is tasked with being compassionate. We live in a time when it is easy to see the needs of others. You realize that? You know, you and I know what's going on everywhere on the planet all the time, whether it's a natural disaster or a war-torn area or whatever. We know more than any generation the needs of planet Earth and the needs of you know, those that are close to us. When we hear about those needs, we should expect our reaction to be one of being moved to meet those needs. Now, here's where you normally insert the big rebuke and exhortation that everybody's blowing it. But the truth is, I love the work that our church does. And I know you, and I know your hearts, those of you who I do know, and that you are moved with compassion. And that when you do hear of needs or see needs, you want to meet them. And so the only thing I would recommend is that we continue to seek the Lord. And whenever these things happen, you think, okay, Lord, are you showing me this for a reason? Why did I see that news report? Why did I read that article? Why am I hearing this? What part can I play, Lord, in meeting that need or in being moved with compassion? And then do what the Lord tells you to do. You aren't asked to meet everyone's needs, but you are tasked with responding to the needs you are shown. And it's a joy to do it because you're never more like Jesus than when you are moved to action by his compassion. Now, the bulk of the verses in verses 6 through 30, they're about being compassionless, what you don't want to see in your life. Let's begin with verse 6. For thus says the Lord to the house of the king of Judah, you are Gilead to me, the head of Lebanon, yet I surely will make you a wilderness, cities which are not inhabited. I will prepare destroyers against you, everyone with his weapons. They shall cut down your choice cedars and cast them into the fire. Many nations will pass by this city and everyone will say to his neighbor, why has the Lord done so to this great city? Then they will answer, because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God and worshiped other gods and served them, weep not not for the dead, nor bemoan him, weep bitterly for him who goes away, for he shall return no more, nor see his native country. No king is named in these verses, but since the context is obviously the final destruction of Judah, we're looking at Judah's final governor, Zedekiah. What can we learn from Zedekiah about being compassionless? Well, what's told us in these verses is that they had forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God and worshiped other gods and served them. We might say that they tried to serve two masters at the same time, continued to worship God, but they had forsaken their promises to God and were also worshiping idols. If it's been a while since you were moved with compassion and actually acted upon it, if, if you see things happening in the world and you think, I don't want to have anything to do with that or those people deserve what they're getting, 
you've got a problem and your problem may be that you have a divided heart, that you're trying to serve God but you also have another master, whether it's your own flesh or whether it's another person or something else that you're pursuing. You can't ever really serve two masters, you know that. God must be your only master, your full passion, and then you will be moved to compassion. Zedekiah was the last king of Judah. Beginning with verse 11, Jeremiah looks back and describes the compassionless reigns of the three kings who preceded him. Verse 11, for thus says the Lord concerning Shalom, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, who reigned instead of Josiah, his father, who went from this place, he shall not return here anymore, but he shall die in the place where they had led him captive and shall see the land no more. Shalom's throne name was Jehoiahaz. We're not told in these verses where he went wrong, but it was no secret, and in other historical Old Testament books, we're told that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He reversed the progress that his father Josiah had made in the land. Josiah had forced spiritual reform on the people, and when uh, Jehoiahaz took over, he reversed that. It didn't take him very long either because he was only king for 100 days before he was deposed. So the question is, do we ever reverse our spiritual progress? You might ask it this way. Are you more sensitive to sin than you were a year ago or have you become desensitized to sin? Know that the world, the strategy of the world system Satan using the world system is to desensitize you to sin. It's, it, it, the world comes and says what the Bible says is immoral is really moral in our generation. It might have been immoral then, but now it's moral. What, the wor- what we say is wrong, they say is right. And though we are always a little better than the world, it doesn't mean we've moved, we haven't moved off of our standard of purity and holiness. We're not to be just a little better than the world. We're to be holy. Be ye holy as I am holy, says the Lord. So just check yourself. Are you more or less sensitive to sin than you were a while ago? And if you're less sensitive, that's why you're less compassionate because you're letting things in your life. The next long section, verses 13 through 23, describe Jehoiakim. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his chambers by injustice, who uses his neighbor's service without wages and gives him nothing for his work, who says, I will build myself a wide house with spacious chambers and cut out windows for it, paneling it with cedar and painting it with vermilion. Shall you reign because you enclose yourself in cedar? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness as well? Then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well. Was not this knowing me, says the Lord? Yet your eyes and your heart are for nothing but your covetousness, for shedding innocent blood and practicing oppression and violence. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, they shall not lament for him, saying, alas, my brother, or alas, my sister. They shall not lament for him, saying, alas, master, or alas, his glory. He'll be buried with the burial of a donkey, dragged and cast out beyond the gates of Jerusalem. Go up to Lebanon and cry out and lift up your voice in Bashan. Cry from Abiram, for all your lovers are destroyed. I spoke to you in your prosperity. You said, I won't hear. 
This has been your manner from your youth that you did not obey my voice. The wind shall lead up all your rulers and your lovers shall go into captivity. Surely then you will be ashamed and humiliated for all your wickedness. O inhabitant of Lebanon, making your nest in the cedars, how gracious will you be when pangs come upon you like the pain of a woman in labor. Jehoiakim wanted a big red cedar king's palace. What's worse, he wanted it during a time when Judah was clearly in difficulty and decline. To accomplish his personal building project, we're told that he oppressed his subjects the way a king should never do. Now, this is probably the biggie when it comes to killing compassion. It's materialism and coveting the things in the world. One reason is because showing Christ compassion requires generosity and sacrifice often of material things, always of time and uh, ability, but often of material things as well. Therefore, if you're covetous, if you're a materialist, you're not going to be moved with compassion. Or when you are, you're gonna bottle it up. And that's one reason why the Apostle John can say, whoever has this world's goods and sees a brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? And the answer to, why would you shut up this world's goods? Because you want them. Because you're building something for yourself. Because you're unwilling to share them. So that'll kill, materialism kills compassion. Verses 24 through 30. As I live, says the Lord, though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet on my right hand, yet I would pluck you off. And I will give you into the hand of those who seek your life and into the hand of those who... Uh, whose face you fear, the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the hand of the Chaldeans. So I will cast you out and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. But to the land to which they desired to return, there they shall not return. Is this man, Kaniah, a despised broken idol, a vessel in which is no pleasure? Why are they cast out, he and his descendants, and cast into a land which they do not know? O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper sitting on the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. As I said earlier, Kaniah is Jehoiachin. This account of him is actually fairly positive. There's a kind of sadness to the phrase, though Kaniah were the signet on my right hand, yet I would have to pluck you off is the reading. It reads as though Jehoiachin was a victim uh, of the actions of others. It was too late for him to have much of an effect because judgment had already been decreed. God must remove the signet, the symbol of the nation's sovereignty. They would have no king. They would be exiled. Same with verse 28 where we read, he was not a vessel in which God took no pleasure. He simply was a king at a time when the throne had become defiled by compassionless predecessors who had set in motion the events of the destruction of Jerusalem and it was really too late. What we learn from the experience of Jehoiachin is that being compassionless can become a way of life for the entire community or country. Though the leaders were held responsible and had a duty to show compassion and to model it, the led are not without consequences. This preaches to us very simply to be a compassionate community 
of believers as a church. We need to be known for compassion. Uh, maybe we should change our name to Compassion Chapel and, and remind ourselves that compassion is so important to the Lord. Uh, we should be excited, therefore, about our work with Gospel for Asia and in Peru. We should be excited about our support locally for the Crossroads Pregnancy Center and about our Deacons Fund that we've established for decades to help folks that are in need. Be excited about all those things. We should be excited about any and every need presented to us as an opportunity to be moved with compassion. If we ever get to the point as a church where we sigh and think, oh, another need, we're in trouble and we're beginning to become compassionless. Currently, we've been praying, I'll just let you in on something, that God would show us a way to further disciple individuals that we've been working with who are coming out of really uh, awful backgrounds, uh, some of them from the homeless community, but from other uh, ways and walks of life as well. Uh, individuals who really are sincere about walking with the Lord, but are disadvantaged in many ways and need that extra help. And we're helping them as well as we can, but the Lord's put on our heart for some time. Maybe there's a place or a house or a building or something where certain individuals can actually be housed and discipled and, and make that transition. And so pray with us about that. And know that those kinds of things are not without cost, but they are on the heart of the Lord. Um, and we want to see that become a reality. Compassion costs, and often our initial response can be, I just don't have the resources, otherwise I would help. When Jesus was on the earth, do you realize that in one sense he had almost no resources with which to help anyone? As a man... In the life that he led, Jesus had no resources by which to help anyone. At one point, he explained that he was poorer than a bird because even birds had nests to return to at night. He said, I don't even have a hole in the ground like a fox have, has. Whenever there was a multitude of people that were hungry, Jesus said, what do we got on hand? And they didn't even have enough food to feed themselves. And yet every time, what happened? The Lord called upon his heavenly father and found that he had resources to spare, leftover resources. Now, you and I are in a little bit of a different position because uh, on the one hand, we don't need any resources, therefore, to do the work of the father and to promote the kingdom. <laughs> but we find ourselves with a lot more resources than Jesus Christ had at his disposal. And so we're needing to have a combination of the two. The Lord would say to us, all of us individually and us corporately, what are you gonna do to meet these needs that I've put in front of you? Not everyone's needs, but these needs. And then as you step out in faith meeting them, you'll find greater resource. We have the same spiritual blessings in heavenly places available to us that Jesus Christ had. His great resource was being filled always to overflowing with the Holy Spirit. And we can have that as well. Don't overlook that spiritual needs were met as the priority. There's a lot of talk today about how the church is blowing it because we aren't meeting the physical needs of people. A lot of talk about the social gospel. Part of our duty as Christians is to show compassion in tangible ways, but to do so without bringing people the gospel is to leave people better off in sin and to say to them, have a drink of water at this well, you're gonna need it because it's pretty hot where you're going, but we can't tell you about that 
because we don't want to interfere. Now, Jesus met physical needs like crazy in ways that were amazing. He raised people from the dead. How's that for meeting a physical need? But he always gave the good news that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but by him. What profit does it to gain the whole world and lose your soul? The greatest compassion we can show is the sharing of the good news. Compassionate Christianity ought to be our platform. Be moved ought to be our slogan.